And welcome to Off Grid, the not really about crosswords podcast. Before each episode, we have solved a cryptic crossword and we've each picked one favourite word to talk about and one clue we like, which we will explain to you later. Now, you listeners don't need to have solved the puzzle in order to follow along with our chat. But if you do want to, for this episode, we solved the Guardian puzzle from Tuesday, the 25th of May, 2021 which was puzzle number 28455, set by Nutmeg. So if you fancy tackling that and don't want spoilers from what we tell talk about soon, there'll be a link to the Guardian's Puzzle page in the show notes at tlmb.net slash offgrid, which will get you most of the way to it, so you can pause the pod and go solve it before you come back. Meanwhile, before we go any further, we should introduce ourselves. I think my name's Dave. And I'm Void. Hello, listener. Uh, we will also have a short quiz, which is inspired by the puzzle a little bit later. Uh, of course, you can't have a quiz without general knowledge. So, hello, General. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm great. Good to have you here. Thank you very much indeed for having me. Okay, listener, before we go any further, we're going to read out three clues that we liked. If you're not a solver, don't panic, because we'll explain how they work for you later. Uh, so, General, what was your favourite clue? My favourite one was five down. Horseman on vacation kept trousers within reach. Uh, and that is uh, six letters. And Dave? I was rather taken with 20 down, which read, Fabric whose reversals no problem? Question mark. And that's a six as well. My one was four down. Crosby heading off in jet, fit for his performance. And that's eight letters. Okay, listen, you can ponder those for a bit and we'll give you the answers and explanations in a little bit after we've heard a little bit more from general knowledge. General, which word did you get inspired by to tell us something about? Well, this is rather embarrassing because it's it's a word which actually isn't in the final puzzle because I thought that 14 across was contracted. Uh, so that's the word which uh, which I've gone for, even though it's not actually an answer. So um, never mind. And contracted, um, I wanted to talk about Braille. Um, I don't. Do you, do either of you know anything about Braille? Um, just the sort of basic general knowledge facts I would. Say, um, what, what are the basic general knowledge facts about Braille? Okay, it is a. Ooh, is it an alphabet? It's a writing system for blind people, uh, consisting of raised dots in a two by three matrix in various different configurations. Very good. Um, yeah, I'm out. That's pretty much all I knew as well. I mean, I. Uh got a bit of a background in typographic design so i know that there is a unicode sector for the braille alphabet so uh, it's got its own you, you could create a part of a font that was in braille if you wish to um but yeah it's right dots and i don't know any more about it than that excellent okay well this, this is this is good to hear so um my father um used to have a very good friend who married a lady who was blind and I was probably about five or six at the time. And I was fascinated by the idea that she could read with her fingers. Mm -hmm. um, I, I thought that was amazing. Um, and so she, she had brought with her a little hand frame for, for writing Braille. Because you can get typewriters and they have, I, I've never seen one, but they have, I, think, I think they have six keys and you just press whichever of the six keys you want and then it moves on to the next button. And it's got a space bar as well. Um, but she had a little hand frame, which is um, it's about uh, it's a bit smaller than A5, a bit larger than A6. And you put your piece of card in it. It sort of opens out. It's a hinged thing. Put your piece of card in it and shut it down. And in the top, there's lots of little rectangular windows. And in the bottom, 
for each window, there are six little depressions. And you have a mushroom with a needle on the or sort of pointed bodkin on the end of it. And you can use that to write out your braille um, in a hand frame if you just wanted to write a little card. So the little thought, windows are providing the, the spacing so you get exactly. your indentations in the right place. Exactly, yeah, because they all need to be absolutely perfectly spaced each time. You can't have them closer together or further apart because then the person who's reading them with their fingers gets all confused. So you have this this framework to write them in. Um, and I thought this was fabulous. I went off and, and learned the Braille alphabet to, um, to send us some postcards. But the, there's some curious things about it. Um, when you're writing Braille, you write it right to left and all the letters are reversed. Because that means that when you turn it over and read it, when it's raised, it's left to right. Yeah. Oh, I see, because you're punching the holes, so they're, they're making the indentation downwards. That is right. I see, yes. So, so, um, so you have to reading. learn one alphabet for writing and one alphabet for reading. It would be a bit like if we were writing and we had to write on the reverse side of the bit of transparent paper, and so we would write right to left in mirror writing. That's correct. Yeah. Or, and if you're, or if, if you're or really if you're careful, writing using using hot metal type. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although with hot metal type, you press the uh, you press the letters and they're cast backwards. Yes. Well, that's or, what, or, I mean, the, the, yeah. what you're looking at is back to front and arranging it back to front. Yeah. yeah. So she would always always say that she found it rather difficult to read the little postcards that I sent her, where I would write out, hello, we are having a very nice day. I have been down to the park. <laughs> she, she would find that quite hard to read because obviously in Braille, space is at a premium. Um, you don't want to have to write out all of that because it, you'd end up with a socking great volume just for a normal book. So there are contractions. You see what I did there? 14 across, which isn't contraction. So it's like a writing system and a shorthand in one, then, is it? That's right. So the letter T is the. And there's all sorts of other things for ing and shun and stuff at the end of words. I'm I'm very rusty on my braille now. Um, But it's that sort of thing, which means that you can speed read an awful lot faster um, than if you write out every single letter in a written. Right. yeah, so there is, there is that. And the corollary to it, which is, um, if that's the right word, I've never quite understood what corollary means. I've, I've always thought it to be something which is added on when I've thought of it. It's a type of typewriter, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry. Goodness. The Smith so, corollary, yes. I, uh, I hope, I, uh, dear listener, we can edit that out. Um, <laughs> so, the yeah, the corollary, if that, if that is the right word to it, is that once um, my mother made a lemon syllabub when she was there. Bear with me, this does go somewhere. Um, <laughs> and that is a mixture of um, it's cream and lemon juice and sherry, and, and you mix it all together, and you end up with this incredibly rich thing, which gets a six-year-old slightly tipsy. I thought it was fabulous. <laughs> um, and I said I would write out the recipe for her because she really liked it, and I very carefully wrote it all out and, uh, and the directions and everything. I presented it to her really proudly. And she starts, she turned it over and started reading it and then burst into fits of giggles um, after just the first few lines. And like, what, what on earth is wrong? And she said, we've developed a speech impediment. <laughs> what do you mean? And the letter R is three vertical dots on the left. So down, all, down, all the way down the left-hand column. It's, yeah. it's, it's um, two columns, three rows. So it's the first column is entirely full. And then there is a dot in the middle on the right-hand column. So it's like a sort of a a long sideways T, if you like. Mm -hmm. And the letter for W is three dots in the right-hand column and a dot in the left. So when you're writing it, you need to write the glyph for a W, but if you want it to be an R when you're reading it. Yeah, yeah. And I had told her to use half a pint of double cream and two tablespoons full of dry sherry. (laughs) Very nice. Excellent. <laughs> I hope she did. <laughs> yes, I think that one went down in history. <laughs> no. So there we go. That is the uh, that is the word and the story which it made me think of. And uh, here's to you, Helen Patton. Ooh. 
Louis Braille. Now, was he blind? I think he was. I think he... Did he run a school for the blind or attended a school for the blind? If only one of us were in front of a computer. Yeah. That would be marvellous, yeah. wouldn't it? Yeah. He was blind at the age of three in one eye, um, yeah. and an infection set in spread to both eyes, resulting in total blindness. Uh, he went to France's Royal Institute for Blind Youth and began developing a system of tactile code. Cool. So there we go. Stuff makes, about brain. Makes sense. Excellent. Uh, all right, Dave, do you want to uh, read out your favourite clue again and then give us an explanation of how it all works? Yes, okay. If you remember, the one that I had picked was fabric whose reversals no problem, question mark, and that was a six-letter word. Now, I'd be surprised if anybody cold solved that one. Uh, certainly it was one of my later ones put in after there were lots of crossing letters to help. And that's partly because the phrasing whose reversal's no problem had me for a far too long thinking I was needing to look for a fabric that was a palindrome because that's what that sort of wording often indicates. So, you know, you think about marum grass and all those kind of words and kayaks and all that kind of stuff and malaya lamb and all those things. So I was going down that route for far too long until I'd got... The crossing letters, which were M something, S something, I something. And I finally managed to work out what they was actually saying, which was to take no problem, as in a mathematical problem, and say none of those, which might be nil sum, and reverse that. It's a bit awkward, but it does give you muslin, which was the right answer for that. Definitely tricky. But a good bit of misdirection, I think, assuming nutmeg intended to lead us up that particular garden path with the with the palindrome concept. So that's that was. Yeah, I would say almost certainly. I was likewise, I was likewise um, on a palindrome, but I had the N from the Nina along the bottom, the end point in the bo- in the um, in the final row. So I was searching for knitting and all sorts of yeah, things, like wading through chambers trying to find palindromic fabrics. Yeah, I was differently misdirected. I wasn't looking for a palindrome. Um, I originally thought it might have been a cryptic definition, referring to some sort of fabric that maybe when you turned it over, it had a different nap to it or something. And the actual name of it was something like a problem. Um, But then I just started trying to think of reversing. Is it maybe just something reversed, spelled backwards and... I thought of nil, and then that gave it to me. Um, I didn't actually have, I think I only had one crosser at the time, and I didn't have the uh, the Nina. So, yeah, didn't hold me up too long. But I did like it. I thought it was nicely hmm. misdirecting in two different ways, apparently. Yeah, seems so. What do you, Void? What are, you, what are you picking? Okay, I picked out the word spine from the crossword. And that made me think of the phrase, the spine of Italy. Uh, Are you familiar with that phrase? Nope. Can't say I particularly am. Okay, so that made me think of the phrase, the spine of Italy, which refers to a mountain range. Um, And if you think, if you picture Italy in your head, it's quite a long, thin country. Mm -hmm. And so if you imagine the spine, where the spine of that might be, and stick a mountain range there, then there is one. And that's known as the spine of Italy sometimes. Uh, And that mountain range is called the Apennines. So that's fine and not very interesting. But what I've always uh, had vaguely floating around in my mind is that um, that mountain range is called the spine of Italy. And yet over here we have the backbone of England. Uh, which is a phrase which is applied to uh, another mountain range. Well, I think technically there may be hills. There might be a mountain in them, um, which runs up the middle of England or northern England. And again, if you think of the island of Great Britain as roughly a long, thin country, um, this backbone of England is 
running up the middle of it. Um, so you can kind of see why they both have a similar type of nickname, which is also, you know, fine, but not that interesting or remarkable, really, until you consider the name of the English range, and that is the Pennines. And I always thought it a bit funny that, uh, you know, the Apennines are the spine of Italy and the Pennines are the backbone of England. And I suppose I've always vaguely thought, that's a bit of a coincidence, isn't it? And so I thought, well, this is my chance to find out. So off to a well-known online resource I went and I had a look at um, the etymology of the Apennines. And that comes from a Celtic word, pen, meaning mountain or summit. Um, and... As in, in Torpen, How Hill, and all those places. Pen. Indeed, in all those, yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. the exact etymology isn't 100% pinned down, but it's thought to have come from a, a Celtic tribe who lived in northern Italy um, way back when. Uh, so then I went and looked for the etymology of the Pennines. And again, various etymologies have talked about that as coming from a Britonic or Welsh name related to pen, meaning head, as in tall pen, how, and all that lot. Um, but apparently, this name, the Pennines, it hasn't been in use for that long. It originally popped up in the 16th century, um, and it was in the form of the Pennine Alps at the time. And it was, uh, yeah, so basically the Pennines are named after the Apennines, uh -huh. which makes a lot of sense now. But we go back to the Celtic tribe. Um, and this actually reminded me of something I was looking up quite a while back when I was trying to solve a crossword. And I was trying to work out the answer to a clue. And I was thinking that, I think the answer to this clue might be the name of a Celtic tribe. Uh, now, I can't remember what the actual answer was. It turned out I was wrong, like and that wasn't do. it. But, um, yeah, like you do. Uh, but I went online looking for names of Celtic tribes, see if I could find one that fitted this particular letter pattern. So I was looking through a long list of Celtic tribe names. And so this is my fact, and I think it's very important that the listener is aware of this fact and stores it in their memory. And that is that there used to be, at various times, in respectively Belgium and Iberia and Aquitaine, uh, various different Celtic tribes whose names were the Trevori, the Turduli, and the Belendi. Marvellous. Excellent. I just wonder if any of them had any nicknames for each other, that's all. <laughs> if there was one in the latter tribe called Trevor the Bellend, that would be... Um, <laughs> you're never quite sure which one he came from. Yes. I was afraid I was going to be bringing the tone down later on, but I'm all right now, I think. <laughs> so, in interestingly, the, um, the glasshouse supervisor at the Botanic Garden, where I work, if that's not giving too much away about who I am, um, has, has recently retired and has, or, sorry, has moved to um, the National Botanic Garden of Wales. And as a leaving present for him, um, I've been working on compiling a list of plants with rude names um, with him. And I got him some seeds of uh, these rude Latin these are rude was, Latin names. Wasn't Carl Linnaeus into kind of giving things rude names? Yes. So, there, um, so there's a, a lovely flower in the pea family called Clitoria terniata. And if you look at it, it, it looks remarkably uh, like you, you would expect it to. It looks like lady bits um, and complete with various anatomical features. Um, but this this one is is one. I, so there's a thing called the International Plant Names Index, and it has 1.2 million um, Latin names for plants. So there's only about 400,000 flowering plants now, but there's all um, all of the um, non-flowering ones as well. And there's several different names for plants too. So I was just searching. I, I had the I downloaded the whole list and started searching it for bum and poo and things like that. And um, my my crowning glory 
Um, and this is the seeds of the, I got seeds, I got him some seeds of this plant uh, when he left is um, um, Bellendina Montana. Um, and it's, it's, it's a lovely little flower. It's a, it's a sort of foot and a half high clump with, um, with little spikes of flowers on the top. It grows at about 5,000 meters. Um, it's really difficult to germinate it down here because um, it likes um, cold temperatures and not very much air. And it's named after a botanist called John Bellenden Kerr, who was born John Kerr. And he took the name Bellenden because his it, some distant cousin was a baron of Bellenden. <laughs> and then for some reason, he instead he used it instead of Kerr. So he became Bellenden. And he spent an awful lot of money trying to trying to get the baronetcy and failed. Marvellous. Uh, inspired choice. General, do you want to tell us about your favourite clue? Um, so mine was um, five down. Let me just uh, fish out that one. Uh, horseman on vacation kept trousers within reach. And this one took me blooming ages. Um, I hadn't noticed the Nina at the top. Um, so that gave me that it started with the letter K, and if I had, I would have got it pretty much instantly. We should probably point out to the listener at the moment that a Nina is a hidden message in a crossword. So um, if you picture a a crossword with all the uh, intersecting answers, and then if you picture the lines where there aren't any answers, they alternate sort of letter, blank square, letter, blank square, um, sometimes crossword tetras are sneaky and they hide messages in those lines uh, and there was one one of those in this crossword so yeah the uh, the top row says backstop backwards um and the k there is my five uh, starts my five down the solution is night k-n-i-g-h-t night and pretty much everything in this clue um is just slightly irritatingly phrased in that it's absolutely, it's perfect. There is nothing wrong with this clue whatsoever. N- virtually nothing means what you think it does. So the, the, the definition is horseman, which is night. Um, and then on vacation means that you're, you're, you're vacating a word. So on vacation kept is KT. And then trousers is here being used as a verb to trouser something. Um, and it's trousering a word meaning within reach. So within doesn't mean it's inside something, which is yet an, it's, oh, everything about this clue means something different. <laughs> so you have a word meaning horseman, and it's on vacation kept, trousers, within reach. So um, KT, trousering, the word nigh, N-I-G-H. And I just swore at that when I got it because there is nothing wrong with it whatsoever. <laughs> it was entirely my brain going down precisely the path uh, which Nutmeg intended me to go down. It is so very was, elegant, isn't it, that one? Yeah, yes. Yeah. I was completely um, taken in by that in exactly the right way. And I can imagine Nutmeg, because I do this as well, I can imagine Nutmeg writing that clue thinking, <laughs> yeah, they're going to do that. He, 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 I've got them. Yes, quite. Yeah, and, uh, yeah I, I like this clue as well. Uh, yeah, I, it didn't hold me up too long because once I had the on vacation kept the KT bit, I sort of leapt straight to the answer then. Um, but yeah, it's it, when you are a crossword setter, it's really lovely if you can set a trap for the solver, especially an experienced solver. Um, I once... I once set a clue which had four words, which set is called indicator words. So, for example, on vacation is an indicator word to vacate a word, take the middle letters out. Uh, And I once set a clue with four indicator words, none of which were actually indicator words in in that clue. And I had a chuckle to myself about that one. Excellent. Interestingly, um, have you ever played um, the game Codenames? Played it? I've not even heard of it. It, okay, it's an excellent game. So you have two two grids of twenty five um, words, and you have two teams, and you're trying to get your team to to identify particular words within your grid of twenty five without accidentally um, identifying words that they're not supposed to get. There's a little um, a key to it, so that I think it's something like twelve words that you're allowed to get, twelve words that they mustn't get, and the trick is to try to describe more than one word with your clue of, I think, are you allowed one word? One word. Yeah. So if, if you say, it, if you have the word 
let's say you have to have um, rope and candlestick, you might say Cluedo. So you'd say Cluedo 2, um, and then they might go for rope and candlestick. And I was very pleased with myself to say Horseman 2, uh, and they got Centaur and Death. <laughs> very ah, good. Nice. Both, <laughs> both of which are Horsemen. So, um, yeah, very pleased with that one. So I, was, I even I, I, I even knew that a knight was a horseman, and I'd thought about that myself before, and I still didn't get a wretched answer. I was once playing code names, and I had a particularly awkward set of words that just didn't seem to go together. Um, uh, and I finally thought, ah, excellent, excellent. I just thought of a word that can tie those together. Brilliant, brilliant. And so I said to my teammates, Scrimshaw. And they all looked completely blankly at me because they none of them had any idea Never of what scrimshaw meant. So <laughs> you can be too clever. <laughs> I was listening to Fleetwood Max Tusk myself this afternoon. Mm. <laughs> uh, it's not. It's not a tusk, though, is it? It's a tooth. We, um, we should put the we should put the listener out of the, the, the misery. A scrimshaw is a carved whale tooth, whale bone, whale. I, I don't I think it's, is it not yeah, a specific object. Those kind of things, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's carving by sailors, typically into whale bones or walrus tooth or whatever materials they have to hand to make okay. something pretty out of. Oh, yeah, so it could have been tusk. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Dave, uh, what story do you want to tell us? Well. Mine's a little bit sort of about those kind of Nina-type things as well, but perhaps possibly inadvertent ones. Um, another way that setters sometimes do a Nina is words that are split across the ends of one word and the start of another word in the same row or column. Like, for example, right. if one answer was servo and the next one was identity, then the last two letters of one and the first two letters of the other might give you Void, for example. Um, hey. But I think that that can. Hang on, I'll write that down. <laughs> <laughs> that can happen by accident, I think. And I happen to spot right in the middle of the grid, the last two letters of fifteen across, which was hirsute, R T E, and the first three letters of seventeen across, which is welcher, R W E L, which gives us tewel, T E W E L. Is this a word that either of you are familiar with at all? I'm at all. seeing blank expression. No, I'm, I'm, go- I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to make a guess. It's going to be some kind of wooden peg. <laughs> a wooden peg. I like it. Well, no, I. Yeah, I can see kind of like dowel and things like that. Um, no, it's it's actually closer to all the stuff that you were talking about earlier. Um, because uh, well, I found it by chance reading the dictionary, as you do. And it means, uh, I'll read out the definition, the rectum of or anus of a horse. <laughs> it just struck me as a, for everyday conversation. a great word for insults, I think, if you want to call somebody a horse's ass without them necessarily knowing. You that, absolutely chill. Absolutely. It's marvellous, isn't it? So that, that got me on, on two directions, really. Um, one is words or obscure words for parts of the body and things like that. And the other is sort of erudite insults and put-downs. Oh, I, I vote erudite put-downs. Yeah. All right. Yes, I'll, I'll go with that. Yes. Okay. Well, I think there are lots of them that are attributed to Winston Churchill. Uh, I think probably most of us know one or two of them. And it's hard to tell how many of them are genuine and how many of them have been made up or at least improved and embellished over the years. Um, So a couple of the famous ones, uh, Nancy Astor said to him, Winston, if you were my husband, I'd poison your tea. And he replied, Nancy, if I were your husband, I'd drink it. Bessie Braddock was a Labour MP, said to him, Winston, you are drunk. And what's more, you are disgustingly drunk. It's rather on PC, but his reply was, yes, madam, and you are ugly, but I shall be sober in the morning. Now, that's possibly an apocryphal one, because yeah. it's it's been marked as, it, it's very similar to an exchange in a W.C. Fields film from 1934, so who knows. But... <laughs> 
But my favourite one is the one which is supposed to be in exchange with George Bernard Shaw. Um, it's also been told about involving Noel Coward. Um, so obviously it's the kind of attribution is uncertain. But for the sake of the story, let's say it's Shaw. Uh, obviously no great uh-huh. fan of Churchill, but I think this is obviously at the time where Churchill was um, kind of in government. So he was you know, the big wig of the time. So Shaw sends him two tickets for the first night of his play, St. Joan, with a note explaining, one for yourself, the other for a friend, if you have one. So Churchill sends them back with a note saying, he is unable to attend the first night. Please send tickets for the second night, if there is one. Which I thought was very nice. Lovely. Oh, very nice indeed. I can't remember which Shakespeare play it is, but there's one of them where there's a brilliant stream of insults in there. I think it it might be King John. And I remember reading it a very, very long time ago and thinking, this is excellent. I must remember these. And of course I haven't, and I can't remember any of them. There is a whole book of Shakespeare's insults. It is yes. called Shakespeare's Insults. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that was that was a route that I almost went down as well. Is looking, you know, all the uh, yes, way-faced poltroons and horse-sun dogs and all those kind of things. Yes. In the Roman Polanski film of Macbeth, um, towards the end, um, one of the Mac people—I can't remember which one it is—runs into a kitchen. And um, there's a small boy who is impudent at him. And whichever Mac it is, runs him through with a sword, saying, watch that egg, young fry of treachery. Um, And the the small child goes, he has killed me, mother, and then dies. And in the Roman Polanski film of Macbeth... You have deadied me. You have deadied me before we have even started the game. But yes, he, he, he has killed me mother, and in the Polanski film, that is played by Keith Chegwin. Oh, yeah. Marvellous! Yeah. <laughs> First time Chegas. he died on screen. Hey. <laughs> well, what about your choice of clue? Okay, I picked four down, which the general had a bit of trouble with, but... That clue was Crosby heading off in jet, fit for his performance, eight letters. So seeing Crosby there immediately made me leap in one direction. But I thought, wait a minute, hold my horses a bit. Because there's there's an obvious Crosby to leap to. But there's also... um, uh, Annette Crosby, the actress who's in... One foot in the grave. Uh, Although I think it's spelled with an IE. Is it? Right, okay. Yeah. And I was wondering also about the spelling of the place near Liverpool. There's a place called Crosby. Is that an IE as well? Do you know? Sorry, I don't know. Yeah. And so I was thinking there's, there's those three possibilities. And at the back of my mind, I was thinking there's another famous Crosby. There's another famous Crosby. And I could not think of it. And I only just now thought of it it's cross the we crosby, asked you for crosby uh, stills we, nash and young you asked you for first names of singers whose surname is crosby you said <laughs> bing was the Our one survey said bing <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh so this clue it's a, a wordplay plus definition clue the definition is fit for his performance uh, and the the his bit of that you actually need to refer back to the earlier part of the clue. So we've got Crosby heading off. And heading off in crossword land generally means taking off the first letter. So it was Crosby, Bing Crosby, without its first letter B. So that's ing. And then we're left with in jet. So we need to put ing into something that means jet. And for a very long time, I was thinking spurt, flume, leer, jumbo, and couldn't get a word that worked until finally I worked out that jet is also a colour. 
Uh, and so we wanted a synonym for black, and that word was sable. So if you put ing into sable, you get singable, fit for Bing Crosby's performance. Uh, and I thought that was nice because it all worked well. There was a sneaky bit of misdirection in there as well. General knowledge quiz time. So I've got I've got three questions for you, um, inspired by um, actual solutions in the puzzle, um, <laughs> not uh, solutions in the puzzle which I thought existed. And the first one is twenty four across a tea leaf. So I was thinking about caffeine. And I was wondering, do you know um, how much caffeine there is in tea leaves compared to coffee? Let's say um, a gram of tea leaves compared to a gram of coffee. I don't know the exact proportions, which, which but I has, know which, which has, which surprisingly... Has uh, yeah, I know it's a surprisingly large amount of caffeine in tea. Um, so I, I would say that tea has more caffeine than coffee per gram. Yeah, I, I, I'm tempted to go down the same route on the grounds that we all know that <laughs> resulting drink, there's less caffeine in the tea than the coffee, and therefore it's probably the other way around in terms of the source material, I would have thought. That's exactly right. There is um, probably about double the amount in tea leaves that there is in coffee, but we use more coffee um, in a cup of coffee than we use tea um, and also the way it's extracted uh, or brewed um, yeah I suppose you say brewed don't you get you go into a shop and say could you please extract me some coffee um, well I do, <laughs> but maybe others don't um, so yeah it's the way that it's um, brewed we'll, we'll put more into a um, into a cup so the, the coffee plant produces coffee because um, it also produces caffeine um, because it actually inhibits the growth of other plants and the leaves of coffee do contain quite a lot of caffeine as well. So when they fall to the ground and rot, it, the caffeine leaches into the ground, and it means that other plants don't grow around the coffee tree. So it's its natural weed killer to make sure that there's no competition for the nutrients or the um, or the water underneath it. Ah, I've got a vague fact floating around in my head that coffee grounds are good for your garden soil. So would that be why they're very they're good. good natural weed killer? Right. So I, I don't think I think you've got all or you've got most of your caffeine out by that point if you've used the grounds because if you you wouldn't want to put caffeine on your on your garden if it still was a weed killer because then you wouldn't well you'd have a garden but it would just be scorched earth. Um, I think it's because there's there's all of the nutrients which the coffee plant put into the bean are still there. Um, your, your nitrogen right. and, and all of that sort of stuff, your, your bean ingredients, so they can um, they can compost down nicely. Lovely. So there we go. That that was question one. Question one. Relatively gentle okay. to start you with. Question number two yeah. um, is based around. I've got to find the um, twenty one down. So ice caps um, are found at the North Pole and the South Pole. And that got me thinking of stuff over the North Pole and South Pole, which is um, the ozone layer. And we all know about the ozone layer and how it's important to protect us from UVB radiation. But here is my question. How thick is the ozone layer? Pick your, <laughs> uni pick your usual unit of measurement of a length. Okay. Now, it's either going to be astoundingly big or astoundingly small. <laughs> I will take a stab at 160 metres. Okay. Is that phenomenally big or phenomenally small? Um, to me, it sounds small. Okay. I'm, Dave? I've not got the foggiest idea. Um, I mean, we, there's all the talk about holes in it. And so you go, well, where there's a hole, there isn't any at all. So... Ah... Uh, <laughs> Who knows? Well, scientists. Pick a number. Well, this is true. Of whom, <laughs> of whom I am not one. And I'm, I'm going to have to hurry. Uh, I, I shall say uh, twice. I, yeah, I'll say twice what Void said. Okay, so 320. So the ozone layer is really interesting. Um, it is made of ozone, 
and ozone is um, three oxygen atoms together. Usually O2 gas, oxygen gas, is two oxygen atoms together. Um, but they can form this, um, this thing called ozone, which is three oxygen atoms together. Um, and you were right about there being a hole. You, you'll get the answer shortly. I, I can see you on tenterhooks. Um, you're right about there being a hole. Um, this was started by, um, probably by CFCs, um, chlorofluorocarbons, which were um, an ingredient of fridges and other stuff. They were really, really good at being the coolant in fridges. And they're also really, really good at um, reacting with ozone to break it down. And one CFC molecule can break down about, I think it was something like 100,000 ozone molecules. So it's really very potent um, at uh, getting rid of it. Um, what do you know about the inventor of CFCs? Is this the same guy who put the lead in the petrol and all that kind of stuff? Yes, that's it. Yes, he is the person who has probably killed more people than ever in history um, or than anyone else because, yeah, he invented leaded petrol and also CFCs. Um, he may not have killed... I, I don't know. There may be some barbarians or something who, who did more. <laughs> just, 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 just in case, yeah. I don't know. But... Um, but yeah, so there have been holes, and a hole in the ozone layer is where it does get down to very thin. The ozone layer normally is, drumroll, three millimetres thick. Whoa! Wow. It's really, really thin. Um, and it's amazing to think wow. that just that, that thin little layer, um, it, it weighs billions of tonnes because... It's thirty miles up, and so yeah, it's very three millimeter thick sphere of yes, exactly a three millimeter thick sphere of um, something like that is is an awful lot of it. But um, yeah, it is only three millimeters thick. So there is your useful fact of the day. Well, you can therefore also see how easy it would be to generate a hole in the damn thing. Yes, well, yeah, that's that's also true. Maybe it's something to do with the rotation of the Earth or something. The CFCs all get sort of spun up there. I don't know. I, 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 I do plants. I don't do physical geography. So if there are any physical geographers listening, then please get in and tell, write in and tell me why the whole of the ozone layer Oh, wait a minute. Tall. So if you're saying it's to do with the rotation of the Earth, um, isn't that what they call the corollary effect? <laughs> Oh, it's, it's it's like a joke, but referring back to the previous part of the podcast as well. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 very like a joke, but yeah, not not. Listener, you get what you pay for. <coughs> Coriolis effect. Yes. <coughs> Sorry. Yes. Sorry. Yes. Which has nothing to do with how water goes down blood holes. <laughs> exactly. It's a complete con. You, if you have a bath and you empty your bath and you stir water around the plug hole one way, it will go down the plug hole one way. And then if you stir the water around the plug hole the other way, it will go down the other way. It's got nothing to do with the Coriolis effect whatsoever. <laughs> I get very angry about this. <laughs> anyway, the third question is um, less of a general knowledge question and more to see how your brains think. I don't know uh -oh. the answer to this question. It is impossible to know the answer to this question, but I want to see how your brains think. And I'm basing it around number 15 across, her suit. So, my question is this. How much hair by weight is collectively grown by the world population every day? <laughs> uh, wait. Well, immediately... I'm not, I'm not asking you to guess this. I'm asking you to, I'm asking you to work it out. Well, first of all, we need a clarifier. All right. Do you mean human population? Very good question, yes. Okay. I think you wouldn't have a hope of answering it if, um, if it were population of all-haired animals. All-haired animals. Uh, and when you say how much is grown, so you're not talking about how much there is. No. Everybody's hair. How much new hair increases, is made. Increases, yes. By follicles. By follicles. So okay. I want to see how I want to see how you go about working this out. And this is the sort of thing where at which um, university interview questions sometimes um, uh, will ask for things like maths and stuff like that. They want to see how you think. Yeah. Well, I'm going to start at seven billion as a number. Okay. <laughs> Why are you starting with that? 
Uh, that is the um, vague ballpark population of humans yep. on the planet at the moment. And the key yep. thing there is vague and ballpark. That is how you start to answer this sort of question. Yep. But you're in the right ballpark, yep. and that's the sort of way that we're looking to answer this question. Okay. Uh, and then you're going to have how long you think uh, an individual hair grows. What do you say? In, in, in what, what was your period time period? Every day. A day. One day. And, you, and then you're going to multiply that by how much hair you think, uh, how many follicles you think your, your average person has, and then that yeah. by, your seven, yeah. by your seven billion. But coming up with a... But wait, wait a minute, but you, you actually asked by weight, didn't you? So we've got, to do, we've got to do an extra calculation at the end. We've got to do length, and then we've got to get to weight. Okay. Would we do that at the end, or Christ. would we do that at the kind of per person stage, and then multiply the weight the weight up by the by the population? Okay, well let, let's go for one of the variables. What, what is what do we think the average length a hair grows in a day is? Yeah, we but again, we're going for we're going for ballpark. Yeah. Um, how would Let, you estimate how long a hair grows in a day? Okay, Dave, I, I, I'm going to say two millimetres. How's that sound? Two millimetres in, in a day? Yeah. I think that's probably an overestimate. How about 0.3 millimetres? So I, I, I want you to be trying to actually have a stab at this based on I need you to show you're working. Show you're working, oh, dearie me. Yeah, so, so picking out 0.3 millimetres because it sounds about right. I want to know yeah. why. Why do I think it sounds about right? Uh, yeah. I don't know. The way I was one, thinking the about one it sort was... Of hair that we can come up with some sort of estimate for, for length of growth is beard hair. Because you think about generally, if a guy doesn't shave, how many days it is before he thinks, "Oh, this is getting a bit too long, and I do need to shave it," and therefore it's you know after three or four days, maybe it's three or four millimeters or something. So you kind of think, well, maybe it's a millimeter a day, but that's okay. but that's beard hair, which is separate okay, from body hair and, and head hair, isn't it? Yeah, but it's, it's it's pretty close. Okay, I I like this because you're 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 showing you're working. The way that I um thought it out was I go for a haircut once every two months, and they take about an inch off. So it grows about thirty centimeters in about sixty days. That's not thirty centimeters. About right. um about sorry thirty millimeters in about sixty days. So they could so, right. so half a mill a day. You've gone down it this way. For interests of time, I, I will I will tell you the way that I um, worked out um, to do this, which is when I have a haircut, I reckon they take off about two ounces, so about fifty grams. Right. So I've grown fifty grams of hair in sixty days. I don't need the number of follicles. I also don't need to know how long it grows every day. So yeah, if you can work out the number of um, uh, the, the amount of hair that you just take off every so often, then you can do it like that. Yeah. Fair dues. Yeah, well, that's fair. So that would be about, wait, what did you say, 50? About 50 unit? or 60 grams every 50 or 60 days. Right. So a gram a day. You, take, you lop off your three zeros from your 7 billion and you get 7 million kilograms of hair every day. Give or take. 7,000 tonnes. Yeah, so there you go. That uh, that took a bit longer to work out than I thought it might, but um, you see the idea which I was trying to get at there, which is sorts of questions which you think that is just impossible to know the answer to that, but actually you can work yeah. you can work out and get get to a surprisingly reasonable estimate. And this sort of question is called a Fermi question. It's a question which you you don't, you have no idea how to get to the, what the answer is, but it's seeing the process. So how many times could you say the alphabet in a day, or how many balloons would it take to fill the room I'm sitting in, or that sort of stuff? So the Drake equation kind of... would be an example of one of those, wouldn't it? Uh, 
the, the what, sorry? is it the Drake equation? The Drake equation. I think I've got the name right. It's the, the, the one about equation where... intelligent um, species in the galaxy or something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and yeah, you work out what's the average eight number times, of planets times, per star, times, and times, yeah, and yeah, how many stars in a galaxy, and how many galaxies in a local universal yeah. bubble, etc. There you go. Phew. So that was my incredibly long third question, which you finally got to the end of, and we still don't know the answer. <laughs> but we had hey! fun time getting there. Exactly. Yes. Ah, yes, which is heavier, the ozone layer or all the hair that people... No, no. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I think that's probably about time to wrap up. So this is, if you're still with us, thank you for listening. Bless you. Bless you and thank you, yes, and, and may your God go with you and all that. Please subscribe from wherever you get your podcasts. As I said at the start, the show notes are going to be at tlmb.net forward slash off grid. We're on Twitter. You can come and say hi to us if you want. I'm at Skurwingle. I'm at at the void tlmb. And uh, if you like, you can also check out my crosswords at tlmb.net slash blog. General? They are very good. Thank you. So over the past uh, few years, I have enjoyed the set of Soup's crosswords. And if you're interested, you can follow him at uh, Hamish Symington on Twitter. And Soup also edits the magazine One Across, which is a crossword magazine which has been going for a couple of decades now. It was started by Aracaria back, back in the day. Uh, there are five puzzles every month, including a historical area, and there have been some from the void in there in the past, so if you're interested, do check that out as well. That oneacross.co.uk, and the one is a number. Marvellous. We'll go look that up. Thank you very much for helping us out. You're very welcome. It was my first promotion. Thank you very much. Uh, everybody, we'll see you next time. Bye! Bye! <laughs> Zoom wave! That was Off Grid. If you enjoyed it, please tell a friend. And if you'd like to rate and review us, that'd be lovely. Thank you very much. The theme tune was by the excellent pop band The Trudy, who you can check out on Bandcamp. We will be back in a couple of weeks, so please join us then. Bye. <laughs>